0: I'm Nick Stepro, and this is The Schema. Today, I'll be talking to Phoebe Yang about how healthcare organizations can keep pace in a rapidly changing world. Hi, Phoebe, great to have you here in Chicago.
1: Thank you, it's great to be here, Nick.
0: Why don't we start, before we get into the meat of it, uh, if you can introduce yourself to the audience and, and tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure, happy to. Well, I started my career a long time ago as a lawyer, but realized fairly quickly, I liked building things more than I liked fighting. So I was a corporate lawyer, not a project finance lawyer, and I ended up spending the first half of my career in the media industry at a time when it was being dramatically changed, even disrupted by digital forces. And if you look across the in- major industries, that we have in in an economy. It was really the first to be digitally disrupted. From there, I ended up going um, to work on a national broadband plan where we were looking to make broadband ubiquitous in the United States in the same way that prior generations had said railroads or electricity or superhighways needed to be able to reach the whole United States. We felt broadband was a really important part of the new economy. And then after that, I really wanted to make a sort of shift into healthcare and so i entered the healthcare space really from a digital perspective at the early days of when the healthcare industry started seeing digital disruption and went to run a corporate development team for a publicly traded information data analytics company and then wanted to get closer to the point of care so went to the largest tax exempt health system in the country at the time to be the chief strategy officer for population health. And then I, for the same health system, helped to launch an international business and ultimately uh, went into working really at the intersection of where employers and providers were creating direct relationships and then the AI ML space, which led me to ultimately uh, Amazon, uh, Amazon Web Services to lead the uh, healthcare business there.
0: Wow. It's a fascinating background, Uh, thank you for sharing. I I wanna pull the thread a little bit on that that media experience that you had, right? So for better or worse, the media industry, massive disruption over the past couple of decades, the fusion of big tech and ISPs and production houses uh, turned it largely upside down. Uh, And I think as you saw when you navigated into the healthcare space, the healthcare space is at an important pivot point itself being disrupted digitally. Can you help for us compare and contrast where media was and where you see healthcare now and in the future?
1: You know, it's interesting. There are a lot of similarities. I don't want to overstate the, the similarities or the analogies, but I will say that as both highly regulated industries that have B2B models primarily, which then move to B2C models and then B2B2C models, there are some similarities. One is that You know, as we've begun to move into what does a consumer, a healthcare consumer want or need, we've really begun to think about things in terms of affordability, convenience, access, choice. And those were all things that we thought about in the media industry as the digital forces were beginning to disrupt that industry. Similarly, as I said, the B2B to B2C and the B2B to C models had to emerge and not all of the incumbents had the capabilities to, to really engage in that space. I'll give you an example. Back in the media industry days when, when I was working in it, the vast majority of our content was on what we call B-roll. Remember those old sort of reels of, mm-hmm. of film and tape? That's what our content was on. It wasn't on in digital format. So we had to think about not only how do we digitize those assets, but how do we really then create business models that some would think would disrupt our traditional models of distributing media, and to some extent that they did, but it was really important to the future of our industry to be able to move in that direction. Similarly in healthcare, we've got new models of care, we've got the digital disruption of care, and we've got new entrants, and there's a real focus, again, on affordability, access, convenience, and choice, and we're moving from B2B models into B the B 2 C models and B 2 C models that are really important. And some of the incumbents feel threatened by that, right? And so I think that there are a lot of similarities and things we could probably learn as we uh, navigate that journey and investing in the future while at the same time ensuring that what we're doing today is really in the best interests of those we're serving.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You, you use a word there, uh, consumer, uh, and there's a lot of talk in, in healthcare about consumerism. And I think a lot of patients, myself included, would love if the healthcare industry treated me more like a consumer in the way that other industries do. Um, and And I think it's failed to take hold. You have some health systems putting marketing consumerism top of mind in terms of how they manage their portfolio of patients or members. Do you want to just comment on that contrast of what a consumer meant in the media industry versus a healthcare consumer today?
1: You know, it's interesting. I understand the if you can say allergy or sensitivity to the word consumer in healthcare because um, it connotes a transactional relationship. Mm. And in healthcare, we're really trying to bring long-term holistic relationships of trust into the work that we do. Um, That being said, the consumer word actually also empowers the person who's doing the purchasing or receiving the care. And so to the extent that the word consumer means, I have choice, that things are affordable, that they are convenient for me, that they meet the needs and wants that I have, you know, we move from being a benevolently paternalistic sort of industry into being a real service-oriented enabling industry. And so there's a positive and a, a sort of a negative connotation to that. And I think in healthcare, that trust piece of it's really, really important because you're fundamentally there to serve and support as opposed to transact. Sure. And so um, that connotation is is really important to remember.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's pull more on that. The This notion of whole person care or patient-centric care, right? Mm-hmm it is very much, the, the idea is to pull up from managing transactions and to see the forest through the trees mm-hmm. and understand the person holistically and, and treat them. It's a profoundly simple concept, but mm-hmm. one that healthcare has really struggled with. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why you think that is?
1: Well, there are lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons is the financial uh, mm-hmm. structure of the healthcare industry. And when you when you're paid to make, sell, produce widgets, you make, sell, and produce widgets. If you're paid on outcomes, then then you work towards outcomes. And I think fundamentally, we've been very oriented towards the widget Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how do we actually create a volume-based business um, over time in order to do well. And so in the context of that, we've divorced the work that we've done from the actual purpose of why we started Doing healthcare. When you think about the genesis of healthcare, it was person to person care. It was helping one person achieve well being and health. And, and so that sort of relationship is really at the core and center of all that we do in healthcare. When we've developed an ecosystem of products and services and financing models that become more and more complicated, but at the same time become farther away from that enablement of care you know, we've ended up with sort of perverse outcomes yeah. as a result.
0: And how do you, uh, this, this concept of outcomes, they're historically hard for healthcare for a couple of reasons. A, our physiology is incredibly complex. And sure. so normalizing for you know, a risk-adjusted outcome can be challenging. Um, but also because the, the time span that you're talking about is so long, mortality outcome you know, occurs over the course of an entire generation, right? And that, again, contrasts, not to keep bringing it back to the media industry, but simpler outcomes of how many subscribers do I have? How many times do they tune into the next stream? What is healthcare doing or what should it be doing to be more outcomes oriented to enable this shift from managing a transaction to managing to the outcome? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, we do have to change the reimbursement model. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's one sort of major rock in the jar, but another area is in order to change that model, we've gotta begin to use the data that we have to draw real insights and predictive values in order to really impact those outcomes and demonstrate how those outcomes have in fact improved. And we still have a fairly static binary uh, view of outcomes with respect to our patients, and yet we have lots of data, right? Mm -hmm. We've got growing volumes of data. And our ability to leverage gain insight from, build intimacy and trust with our patient slash consumer slash member is going to be driven off of our ability to really uh, gain insights from that data. So as we move forward, you know, being able to create um, both sort of a broader platform, but uh, as you said, sort of a longitudinal view of any particular individual, not just with respect to their clinical Uh, state, which is really important, but it's only one aspect of the well-being of an individual. And a lot of things are not really clinically based. We know that clinical data and claims data are retrospective. They tell us what the past has looked like for an individual patient or a population as a whole. What we have found, and when I was doing population health work, really in the early days of uh, after the Affordable Care Act came out, we what we found is that the most predictive data that we had was not claims or clinical data. It was, in fact, what we now call social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. At the time, we didn't have that term, but we really were driving towards really what any nurse, ER nurse, could tell you um, when a patient walked in the door, whether they were going to be, you know, a readmission or not, whether they were going to follow the protocols, all those things that people know um, when they've been in clinical practice for a long time and can identify. So those are the predictive factors. and, And I think, you know, if you are dependent on an hourly wage earner to get to your next doctor's appointment, you're probably not going to go to the next doctor's appointment. If you don't have a working hot water heater in your home, you're probably not going to follow the dietary recommendations being made. And so there are lots of things that we now can utilize and leverage um, in order to um, both predict but also impact those outcomes in yeah. a different way. And,
0: and as we, you talk a lot about the. The massive quantity of data that we now have, which is unprecedented historically in healthcare, um, and how that can enable the creation of a whole person, uh, whole person care, and managing to outcomes, and all of this. Mm -hmm. In in contrast to that, so those are you know that, in in conjunction with new value-based payment methodologies. In contrast to that, there's in some ways increasing fragmentation in healthcare. Right, you have this um, injection of. Telemedicine, I think, in the past two and a half years was the first time a lot of people yeah. picked up the phone or jumped on a Zoom call and talked to a doctor seven states away that was unaffiliated with their PCP, didn't have their longitudinal record. And yeah. so, in that way, there's potentially less personalization. You add on top of that the fact that provider turnover is a little bit higher. So, you don't have these long term relationships in the same way with your PCP, and that can lead sure. to I think a trust deficit between patients and the healthcare institutions that Mm -hmm. they exist in. And so this concept of of disruption and whole person care and patient trust, there's a swirl of factors. And I'd I'd love to get your take on, are we moving in the right direction or the wrong direction?
1: Yes. Both. You no, know, I, I think it's going to be messy before it becomes clear. Mm-hmm. But we are in a stage where, I mean, post-pandemic, the good news is that we know we've come together and we've been able to address some of the barriers to coming together through a crisis. Mm-hmm. The bad news is it's exposed, you know, this is good news too, disparities that have existed for right. a very long time. but. The awareness and the appreciation for how complex that is, is a great opportunity Mm -hmm. for all of us. And I think what we're seeing right now is the messiness of trying to sort through what did we do well? What do we really need to do to make it sort of systemic improvement? How do we, I mean, the data is great. You can apply incredible AI ML Mm -hmm. capabilities against the data. But if the system is biased, you're just accelerating and exponentially worsening the biases the system um, by applying AML. So really making sure that we have as holistic of a view and comprehensive view of the data to provide the appropriate context, not only for a population, but for individuals, patients, members, consumers, in the care that we provide to them is really, really key to the future.
0: You, you mentioned the um, pandemic impact and how it sort of uh shined a light on uh, uh, certain deficiencies of the healthcare system, certainly in terms of care disparities. The pandemic disproportionately affected a number of of different communities. There's a ton of other fallout Mm -hmm. with the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Again, we talked about turnover. Is uh, patient trust in the healthcare institution is down? Hospital and health system revenues are really, really threatened at present. Where do you think we go from here?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm, cautiously hopeful um, of where we are. And the reason is because you've got a lot of smart people thinking about and running at these issues. And in some ways, some of the macroeconomic trends are helping us to prioritize what's really important. So it's easy to throw lots of spaghetti at the wall, but when you have only a little Mm. spaghetti to throw, you start to really think about what's gonna be the most strategic. So now I think we're forcing us to be very, thoughtful, strategic, and to take a step back because we don't have unlimited bandwidth. As we move forward, I do think that the importance of technology and delivering appropriate care, as well as uh, helping to evolve our system at large is gonna be really central. Um, And creating those trusted relationships across different players, whether incumbents, enablers, disruptors, and others in the system is gonna be you know, key to the success that we all have.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this analogy of throwing spaghetti against the wall, right? And yeah. the, how top line pressures can adjust and, and force you to be a little bit more strategic. I wonder if you want to comment on how tech companies might be facing a similar thing, right? The health tech industry has been a very active space for investment um, for a number of reasons. I revenues are huge in this space, re- relatively speaking. It's nearly a quarter of our GDP. Everyone has a personal story in healthcare. It's very obvious to most people that the healthcare system is ripe for transformation, and yet you've had this um, influx of massive, you know, private equity capital into this healthcare transformation market. There's been progress, but there's also been a tremendous amount of failure in its wake too. And so, I'm, I'm I would just love your your commentary as capital markets evolve, you know, and have evolved over the past twelve months and outward. How you how do you see a refinement of the health tech space from a um, software and tech player standpoint? Mm
1: -hmm. I I think, first of all, I will say that all of the investment in the space, I think, has been a really good thing Mm -hmm. overall um, because you have to be willing to try new things Mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to fail in the context of that if you're going to really arrive at lasting innovation. Mm -hmm. And so um, as things begin to thin out and priorities begin to take shape, I think it forces also sort of more thoughtful approaches around collaboration because when you're operating in an environment of abundance, sometimes you don't have to make those priorities and you also don't have to collaborate. And so in the context of where the ecosystem is, I think it's a very healthy thing for us to have to prioritize, but also really give some serious thought to what do our partners potentially offer us and what do we bring to the table? If you're in an environment in which everybody is just focused on incumbents then that's a bit of a false reality because the most interesting things often happen at the edges. And the healthiest things for those incumbents often happen at the edges. But if you're on the edge and you're doing a lot of this innovative work and you think you can do it without the incumbents, that's also a false reality because the incumbents have invested a lot in developing trust and ownership and brand and a stake in the space and so there is a point in time and I think we're hitting that now of how do we work together to better things for patients and for consumers and for members, which is why we're all really here.
0: Yeah, I think that is dead on. I love the concept of partnership about how constraints require that partnership and certainly as I look at both providers and health plans as well as tech players in this space, there's so much mental capital going into yeah. solving the same problem, right? Yeah. By all of these different players that are doing it independently. And I think the more we can shed this concept of abundance like you say and, and, and deploy that mental capital in a more strategic way, I think will be better for everyone. Mm-hmm. What would you say to somebody entering this space as a tech player, mm-hmm. right? Um, a Startup going into health tech, you've been in the space for a while, you've seen what worked, what what hasn't, what would you give, what advice would you give earlier players?
1: I think one of the really important things to remember, it's easy to come into the space very exuberant, and we love that Mm -hmm. energy in the space, right? And um, at the same time, it is really complex. Mm -hmm. And so not to underestimate the complexity, but also the reasons why things are wrong. I'll give you an example. I remember when I first came into the cloud space and I was talking to a very experienced seller in the space and one of the key benefits of operating the cloud is you can move uh, capital costs to operating costs. Mm -hmm. And that sort of talking point was iterated over and over again with particular customers but it wasn't sinking in. And there was a great deal of frustration on the part of um, that particular individual because he said, you know, he, they just don't get it. Well, the reality is they do get it, but what you're saying to them doesn't fit their model because they can raise capital costs right. through philanthropy. They can't raise operating costs mm-hmm. through philanthropy. And so there's a, some of the connotations of the words that you're using don't fit the context Of the healthcare institution that you're working with. And so I think really understanding both the incentives and the dynamics of this industry coming in and figuring out how I can be an enabler as opposed to coming in sort of with a lot of hubris and saying, let's just disrupt this whole thing because there are lots of reasons for some of these things. And perhaps there's an enablement towards that transformation if we all work together.
0: Yeah, I think that's so smart. There's a There's a certain implied arrogance in the phrase disruption um, Mm. that doesn't exist in the the term enablement, right? And I think it's a powerful term. What about if we take that question that we applied towards early tech players and we talk about provider organizations that might be early in the maturity curve of um, digital transformation and the shift to cloud? Do you have any advice for them?
1: There are thousands of digital solutions out there uh, to impact healthcare, and many of them are very, very strong. But unless you start with what I've seen is a common key ingredient across successful organizations adopting these solutions, you're not going to be successful. And that common key ingredient is culture, culture change, a a culture of wanting to innovate and adapt and advance Mm -hmm. and move forward. And a lot of organizations know the talking points around that and certainly understand that conceptually, but unless from the very top of the leadership on down, that culture change is ingrained into everything that we do, the change doesn't happen. So I've seen organizations that have a chief innovation officer, but if the CEO and the chief clinical officer and the chief financial officer and the CIO and across the spectrum of the organization are not also the chief innovation officers, the innovation doesn't happen. And so one of the key things that really has to happen, I think across all these organizations, if you wanna adopt digital solutions, if you wanna move into cloud computing, is that top-down sort of cultural leadership and cover for that innovation. The flip side of that is we have to be willing to push innovation to the edges. The monolithic sort of approach towards innovation often doesn't work because there's no way that one single person or one single group of people can innovate across the complexity of any particular healthcare organization. And so in the context of really wanting to affect transformation towards the end of better outcomes, we all have to be in it together. And so actually having teams that work outside of that core on particular areas that can also be empowered to innovate as well, that's really key to the appropriate use of digital solutions and through any kind of cloud adoption.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Last question, Phoebe. Let's talk about risk aversion in healthcare. Um, it's It's a place where historically it's moved a little bit more slowly transformation, and some attribute that to the risk implied because of the delicate nature of what the healthcare system is doing. Right? You mentioned it's caring for humans, it's building trust, and that's built up over decades and decades of work, uh, and I think we're naturally averse to uh, threatening that with certain innovations and and, and disruptions. How do you think about risk aversion in healthcare and and how startups and providers alike should be thinking about it?
1: So I think the single most misunderstood notion in healthcare is this idea of risk. Mm. We tend to think of everything in very binary terms. Everything is either life or death. It has life or death consequences. And the result of that is that we paralyze ourselves. Um, If the reality is at least 80% of decisions, even in healthcare, are not binary decisions. They are um, what we think of as two-way doors—you have seventy percent of the information. You walk through that door. If it's not what you should be doing, you turn back around and you and you you pivot and you learn from that and you move on. But because we have this notion that everything is very binary and it's either life or death consequences, we paralyze ourselves to advancing, and that in fact is the riskiest position of all. Um, what I've often seen is it's the analogy is you've got a hemorrhaging patient, you have no idea what the source of the bleeding, what, you know, what's happening with this patient. But if you wait until you've figured out all the possible prognoses and diagnoses around this patient, the patient could have died. Mm -hmm. And so inaction is the riskiest uh, course of action of all. And so in the course of that, I think one of the things that we have to remember is that we need to develop a much more sophisticated understanding of risk in healthcare, determine what sorts of risks truly are binary and which ones actually have sort of multifaceted elements to it and de-risk those decisions so that we can move forward to advance advance what we all want, which is better care. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, with that, the, the the risk of inaction in our mind, we, we will go forth. Phoebe, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, brilliant you, and insightful as always.
1: Likewise, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sure.